tonight uh, we are starting a, a new series, as Matt said, on the book of Jonah, which I am just all sorts of excited about. Um, this is just such a weird, unique little book that's like tucked in the middle of the Old Testament that uh, we probably all have some things that we immediately associate with Jonah. Um, whether you grew up in church or not, we all have notions about what this story is about. And sadly, the way that this story is told in popular culture uh, means that most of us are wrong <laughs> when we think about what this story is actually about. So what's the biggest thing that we all associate with Jonah? A whale. Yes, immediately. There is not even a whale in this story. It's a big fish. And sure, to ancient people, a whale maybe is a big fish. There were two different words, but it could totally be a whale. But whatever the case, uh, the whole whale, big fish thing is not, 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 not a really big part of the story. It is mentioned in two verses, a total of three times. It is an incredible, incredibly minor part of the story. Saying Jonah is about a guy who's eaten by a whale is like saying Stranger Things is about a girl that eats Eggo waffles. Or that Snow White is about a poison apple. Like, technically, you're not wrong, but you're not right, right? Uh, the book of Jonah is, is this amazing story that reveals deep truths about who God is. Uh, it's a unique book of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, as I said. It is one of the 12 minor prophets uh, they are called that not because they are less important than the major prophets. It is because they wrote significantly less than the major prophets who just went on and on and on. Um, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah, the major prophets, big books. Minor prophets, short, smaller, um, easier to read books. Uh, all the other books of the prophets um, are written as uh, sort of direct records of what they said. So what you will often read in any of the other prophets is uh, a passage will start with, in the nth year of the reign of the king's name, the Lord God came to, insert the prophet's name here, and he said stuff, a lot of stuff. And there's usually not much context, so you kind of have to go back and, and try to pair up what's going on in history at this time to understand why this prophet might be saying this thing to this king. It's just... Here's what the prophet, this prophet said at this time to this person. And it's usually long stanzas of a highly poetic language that at first glance can be really difficult to interpret. Jonah is not like this at all, not even close. Jonah is a narrative, it is a story, and it's a finely crafted narrative at that. Uh, Jonah is written as a comedy. <laughs> um, it's a play with elements of parody and satire and absurdity. Um, it's twists, it has twists and turns that subvert your expectations, which what makes it comedic. And all of this we miss often because of the thousands of years and multiple cultures and languages that this story has been passed through over time. But um, I will try to point out to you some of the co comedy as it comes up. For instance, a story where the main character, very early into the narrative, tries to escape God by unaliving himself through being thrown in the ocean but then God is like, nope, 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 nope. Here's a, here's a little organic submarine that you can hang out in for a few days instead. That, we're used to that story because we've heard Jonah. Like, we've seen Pinocchio. Like, this idea of, like, a huge whale swallowing someone and them living in it is just, like, baked into our brains. For the first people hearing this, that would have come totally out of left field. It would have completely subverted their expectations. And it would have been funny. It's funny. It's kind of dark but it's also funny. 
Uh, there are plenty of other examples that we'll point out along the way, but Jonah is written like a four-act comedy. Um, and, and it's totally unique among the prophets and the rest of the Bible, really. Um, at the end of the day, Jonah is about God's radically inclusive and, and universally available love and grace. Uh, it's a warning against nationalism and, and racism. It teaches us about how we're to treat everyone, not just our people or who we decide is in. Uh, it's a very complex and, and complicated story, though not very long. Um, and it contains many, many important themes that people have interpreted in a variety of different ways throughout history. Um, so with all of that, let's, let's get into it a little bit. Um, this is Jonah 1, verses 1 through 3. That is all we're going to get through tonight. Verses 1 through 3. It goes like this. One day long ago, God's word came to Jonah, Amittai's son, up on your feet and on your way to the big city of Nineveh. Preach to them. They're in a bad way, and I can't ignore it any longer. But Jonah got up and went the other direction to Tarshish, running away from God. He went down to the port of Joppa and found a ship headed for Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into the boat, joining those going to Tarshish, as far away from God as he could get. That's it. Um, real quick, I, I just, I wasn't going to say anything about this, but I want to point it out. Uh, in this passage alone, it says Jonah went down to the port of Joppa. Port of Joppa. Then it says he goes down into the boat. Uh, if you read this in the NIV, it might say he gets aboard the boat, which is a real shame because in the Hebrew, it literally says down into the boat. In the next uh, thing that we'll look at in a couple weeks, the next couple verses, it says later that he goes down into the um, under, into the, what am I trying to say? The, the part of the ship that you go into. <laughs> what am I trying to say? Uh, below deck. He goes below deck. He goes down below deck and he falls into a deep sleep. The, the, the author is sort of winking at us and foreshadowing what's coming. Jonah's going down, 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 deep, which is just kind of cool. Um, but, okay, so based on everything I just read, uh, the original audience would have found many parts of just this first three verses very strange. Um, and they would have known that something is up with this story. This is not a normal story <laughs> that we're used to hearing. First of all, we have Jonah. We're told that he's a prophet. Prophets were heroes used by God to hold the leadership of Israel accountable. Um, they were the ones who would who'd be counted on to speak the truth, um, especially when the king was not speaking the truth. Uh, the original audience would have recognized Jonah. Um, he's an obscure prophet mentioned in just one sentence in the book of 2 Kings, which is one of the books that chronicles sort of the history of the kingdom of Israel. Um, and we're told that Jonah served the king of Israel at that time, and he predicted that Israel would extend its borders out. So they would be taking land back from their enemies. That's basically all we know about what Jonah did from the history books of the Bible. Uh, but that's a very important detail for our story, as we'll talk about. Uh, Jonah predicted Israel expanding its borders. So he became a sort of a symbol for Israel's um, nationalism, its military might, uh, its aggression, you might say. And that's what the original audience of, of the book of Jonah would have associated with hearing about the prophet Jonah. That's what they instantly would have thought of. Now, Nineveh. Jonah is told by God to go to Nineveh. This detail of God asking Jonah to go here would have raised eyebrows immediately. Uh, prophets were re only really sent usually to internally to the various kings of Israel or Judah. Uh, they were relaying messages for God, um, for God's people or, or for the kings themselves 
and they would often speak about foreign countries or foreign rulers, but they were never sent uh, to speak directly to those foreign rulers. They're always still within the kingdom. So this is really strange that God is telling him to go out to this foreign country. On top of that, Nineveh is the capital of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Um, the Neo-Assyrian Empire was one of the most brutal in history. Uh, they were the notorious for, for atrocities that um, I tried to find ways to like ex- describe the things that they were known for that wouldn't uh, just be too horrific to talk about, but I can't. Like They just are known for, for terrible, terrible things. Suffice it to say that it was a regular habit of theirs to conquer people by killing most of the population in brutal and humiliating ways, and then they would deport the rest of the city um, to another city of theirs in an attempt to completely just obliterate the conquered people's culture and any will that they might have to rebel. This is exactly what they do to Israel just 30 to 70 years after uh, kind of the setting of when this, this story of Jonah is supposed to take place. Um, so there's a lot of irony in God sending Jonah, the symbol of Hebrew nationalism and military victory, to Israel's greatest enemy. Uh, this is akin to a story about a, a Jewish person being sent to, to Berlin to convert Hitler uh, at the height of Nazi power in the 1940s. But... We're told, despite what God says, Jonah doesn't go to Nineveh. He gets on a boat to head to Tarshish, which is a weird name, but Tarshish is, a modern, is in modern-day Spain. It was at the edge of the known world at that time. So in his mind, uh, it was quite literally the farthest place that he could go <laughs> to get away from what God was asking him to do. So right off the bat, we have this weird story about God sending a prophet to a foreign enemy And instead of obeying like prophets are supposed to do and always do, this prophet instead starts heading in the exact opposite direction to the edge of the world. Also, I I want you to notice all of the details that were given in this opening bit. Jonah got up and he went the other direction to Tarshish, running away from God. He went down to the port of Chapa and found a ship headed for Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into the boat, joining those going to Tarshish as far away from God as he could get. First of all, we know he's going to Tarshish. How many times do they need to say that? Do you need to know what port he travels to? Why is that important to you? Uh, it's not important to me. Do you need to know that he pays the fare <laughs> to get on board the boat? Like, <laughs> it contains all this unnecessary information, but it withholds the most important detail. Did you notice that? This would be like me telling you, all right, everyone, I decided to leave my wife and my kids and my job and my friends, and I'm going to Hawaii. Uh, my, my Southwest flight leaves tomorrow. Um, I'm going to wake up early. I'm going to get a lift. Uh, when I get to the airport, I'm going to go through security, as one does, uh, on my way to Hawaii. And, and when I get to my gate, I'm going to then board with boarding group A because you know I paid for early bird boarding. Um, and I'm going to scan my boarding pass. I'm going to get a window seat, and I'm going to head to Hawaii. What are you missing in that story? <laughs> I gave you lots of details, but I did not. I just glossed over Why? 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 Why is this happening? Why is Jonah doing this? Why is he doing the exact opposite of what God is asking him to do? There's a couple possibilities here. Maybe he's lazy. That that would maybe make sense, but if that were the case, he probably would have just stayed where he was, not tried to get as far away as possible. 
Uh, maybe he felt like uh, going to Nineveh was too dangerous. That's an option. But so is sailing to Tarshish, as he will soon find out. Also, we see that when things get really bad later on in the story, Jonah seems to have nerves of steel. So him being too scared of this doesn't really seem to be an option. Uh, or maybe, you know, he, he has a fear of death. He does not seem to be afraid of death throughout the rest of the story. In fact, he often tries to <laughs> get killed. Uh, he, try, he, he asks sailors to throw him overboard so that he'll drown. So what's going on here? Why is he doing this? It's clear he doesn't trust whatever he thinks God is up to. Um, maybe he just doesn't want to be a part of it. Maybe he doesn't believe that this is the best course of action. Uh, maybe he thinks he knows better. Maybe he just doesn't understand. And so he runs away to the farthest place that he can think to go, to Tarshish. What is your Tarshish? What do you run to when you're scared? Or when things get dark and difficult? When things don't make sense? When you have big unanswered why questions in your life? Or in the world around you? Why, God? Why is this happening? What the hell are you doing? What do you run to when you feel out of control? Do you get really anxious and try to control everything and everyone around you just to feel some sense of inner stability? Do you numb yourself with, with substances or entertainment or experiences or, or sex or romantic relationships or affirmation from others about maybe the way that you look or, or the work that you do? Do you throw yourself into your job and just grind, grind, grind away? Or do you maybe swing in a different direction and throw yourself into religious practices? Do you think God must be mad at me for something? So I better get back to my quiet time. I better pray more. I better actually go to church. Maybe I should start tithing. The Bible talks about both of these ways of trying to control our lives through rebellion and through religion. Rebellion is what happens when our belief in who God is doesn't match up with what we're experiencing in our lives. And that makes us feel helpless and out of control. And to sort that out, we try to distance ourselves completely, um, distance ourselves or, or completely ditch the idea that God is in control or that he is good or that he is real. Rebellion is what happens when we, try to when we decide that, that we're on our own, that it's up to us to make this work. Religion is similar, but, but instead of distancing ourselves from God or ditching God, we, we try to, to do the things that he, we think he will like to get him to do what we want. Like if I make God happy, maybe he'll make my life better. It's ultimately an attempt to control God. Obviously, Jonah opts for <laughs> the former and bailing. When you feel out of control and helpless, do you run from or try to control God? I run, I rebel. Um, when it doesn't make sense, when things get dark, externally I'm steady and constant and will do whatever I need to do to help stabilize, but internally I'm bailing. Um, I'm real quick to think that this whole thing is a sham and, and that maybe God isn't real after all and maybe life is meaningless. Uh, I try to control my anxiety by, by removing all risk of hope, which is really depressing. What do you try to do? What do you do? 
When you feel out of control and, and re- helpless, do you rebel against God or do you try to control God? Both, both, rebelling and religion are, are results of not trusting in God's goodness and his commitment to work towards goodness through all things to work in every circumstance to bring goodness from it. We don't trust that God is working to reduce suffering and increase joy in all things. Romans 8.28 uh, reads, God is working through all things to bring about good for those who love him. It's a very famous, somewhat controversial verse. And it's typically interpreted um, that this means only for Christians God is doing this. But I think that's a mistake. In fact, Jonah is largely a story about God working to bring about good for people who definitely do not love him and are doing everything in their power to do the exact opposite of living a life with him, at least initially. God work is working through all things to bring about goodness, uh, to bring about new life, to bring about growth. God doesn't cause evil things to happen, I don't think, but works to bring good through evil things that happen. He's the ultimate ultimate improviser, endlessly creative in finding ways to bring good out of everything that happens. As we'll see in the rest of the story, Jonah continually tries to disobey God throughout, and God uses it every time to bring about something good for the people that Jonah comes in contact with and ultimately for Jonah, even if he never, never sees it. God is working through all things to bring about goodness, new life, and growth two responses to that idea. First, you might think, that's cool. That's a nice thought. That feels warm and fuzzy, that God is working to bring out, bring good out of the terrible things that have happened in my life. But I'd rather to have just not gone through those things at all, right? And I think sometimes God agrees with you that what happened to you was tragic and maybe even evil. But would it really be better for things to just end there? <laughs> or... Is it better to take that tragic event and use it for good? To take what was meant for evil and use it to bring about renewal? Secondly, I think it's always easier to stay where we are rather than to risk and to grow. And sometimes the only way that we develop is through suffering. God has a bigger picture of time and the way things work than our extremely limited perspective. So, so can you let go and trust in God's goodness? I know that's a far easier thing to say than do. Richard Rohr, who um, people either love or hate, and I have mixed feelings about, but uh, there are some things that he writes that I really appreciate. He says this quote that I love. Uh, He writes, God protects us into and through death to resurrection and new life. And I think we see this all over the place. We see this in nature, death to life, renewal and rebirth. You are the result of the death of a star. I think I've talked about this before. All of us, everything on this earth, including the earth, are made of the dust of exploded stars. All of this stuff, all matter, all of us are the result of some incredible and massive destruction. Or um, maybe more down to earth, Literally, here in Colorado, thankfully not this year, but often at this point, late into the summer, lots of our mountain forests have been decimated by fire, which we are always, um, at least momentarily, horrified by, rightfully so, because fire is destructive. 
but it's also renewing and purifying and converts death to new life. Forest fires quite literally um, regenerate the earth. They, they allow important nutrients to re-enter the soil and, and they create new habitats for plants and animals to live. Death to life, it's the pattern of the universe. So then why are we so surprised when, when it shows up in our lives? First Peter, um, in First Peter 4, Peter writes this to his audience. Friends, when life gets really difficult, don't jump to the conclusion that God isn't on the job. Instead, be glad that you're in the very thick of what Christ experienced. This is a spiritual refining process with glory just around the corner. I am certainly guilty of this, which is why I, <laughs> I appreciate stories like Jonah. I can relate to him. Doesn't this verse from 1 Peter sound like what Jonah's doing? Jumping to the conclusion that God is asleep at the wheel, maybe God has lost his mind, and he's getting up and going the opposite way. I think, I know, we will confront many things that feel like death in our lives. Death is a necessary part of resurrection. When we encounter darkness and suffering, when we encounter death, we have a choice to try to exert our will and, and to control it, to run to Tarshish, which always leads to more death, or to surrender to our lack of control. Uh, to face Nineveh head on and, and be transformed by it, which leads to life and, and greater love. All of this we find in just the first few sentences of this amazing story from the Hebrew Bible. And I'm, every time we come to this story, I feel like I see it uh, in a new way. And I'm excited to dig into the rest of it, the whole story that happens after the big fish. Um, with you in the coming weeks. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for um, ancient stories that uh, capture our imaginations and show us the truth of who you are in new and surprising ways. God, this place can often be a scary place to live. This existence on this side of the renewal of all things can be bleak. But God, when we find ourselves in those seasons, may, may we be uh, encouraged and reminded of the ways uh, that you have worked suffering out for good as we look back in our lives. God, may our eyes be open and, and ready to see the ways that you are working to bring about good through all things. And may we be a part of the work that you do to bring about good through all things. We love you. Amen.